Well, um, we're going to do one more sermon on faith and politics. Um, I tried to get out of doing this one. I got up at 3 o'clock this morning, and I kept telling, uh, I kept wrestling with God about, uh, really, I could just go ahead and start Luke. Is that okay? Um, if you haven't been here, um, we have uh, been um, unpacking uh, faith and politics. And, and, and seriously, it is an important um, topic for us in the church to uh, to dig into and to uh, face up to. And we began by talking about the importance of being quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger and how it is important uh, for us to, to hear other people's perspectives um, and how important it is for us to learn to be civil as we have conversations around faith and politics. And then in week two, we talked about the dangers of, of political idolatry, of this thing of, of we get so entrenched in our own tribe and in echo chambers that we find ourselves being led down paths where we begin to endorse things that really aren't godly just because our tribe does. And we begin to think that the uh, that the, uh, our tribe can do no wrong and the other tribe is evil and they're our enemy, etc. And then in uh, week three, we looked at the importance of understanding all that we do. If we're going to be faithful Christians who participate in politics, it is important for us to understand what our primary calling is. It's to remember the Great Commission, that we are called to make disciples of other people, that we are called to participate in the Great Commandment to love God and to love other people, and we are called to carry out the Great Requirement to love justice and mercy and walk humbly with God. And so in whatever way that we engage in polit uh, politics or the public life, uh, that we need to keep all of that in the forefront of what we do. Our witness is important. How we treat other people is important. And how we approach issues of justice and mercy are also important. And then a couple of weeks ago, we, um, we looked at uh, the importance of Scripture again and... and um, and then talked about how important it is for us to, to listen to Scripture. And so today, uh, what I thought uh, would be uh, good to do, and, and from the beginning, um, I, was, I was hoping, well, maybe I'll take one um, hot issue and attempt to uh, discuss it or unpack it and see how we might put into practice some of what we have been uh, listening and, and hearing. And uh, so um, I picked a, a, an easy topic for us to unpack. I thought I'd talk about abortion today. Yeah, I may be a little crazy. I don't know. Um, but, um, you know, it is important. I, I, I thought, well, I could pick something simpler, something a little bit easier to do. And yet it is a topic that over and over again creates polarization within the political realm and within the church realm. It is the one topic that uh, uh, Christians across the board um, say, or, or at least um, some Christians say, it's the one topic that drives how they vote regardless of every other issue. And so I thought it might be worthwhile for us to just have a conversation around, uh, abort I mean, what is it, uh, what is a Christian stance on abortion? What is a, a Christian stance? How do we go about figuring out um, where we begin as Christians on this issue and on other issues? And, and as I uh, began and, and looked at this faith and politics, I'll say that uh, Eugene Cho, who is a pastor out in, in the state of Washington, he wrote a book 
um, called, um, let's see, Thou Shalt Not Be Jerks is the name of the book. It's a, it, it's a very good uh, book. It's like the Ten Commandments of engaging in faith and politics. Uh, but in that book, he noted that as he began to uh, dig into uh, this, that um, he really began to question himself, and, and he took like eight to ten um, hot political issues, and he took six to eight months to really just dig into understanding the issues and, and, and reflecting on how Scripture spoke into those issues and, and really just asking himself, you know, is the stance that I have, is, is it a stance I've come to because of my Christian faith? Or is it a position that I've come to because of, of cultural issues, because of family, because of, uh, of what tribe I find myself associated with? How have I come to arrive at the, at the um, positions that I have on these different things? And, and he said as he unpacked those, he said some of his um, positions changed. Um, but uh, even the ones that didn't change, he said uh, that he had a much greater perspective of where the other side came from. And so if nothing else out of today, I am just hoping that as we um, have this uh, discussion, as we unpack this, uh, that uh, maybe we'll hear something in a little different light that may give us uh, a better perspective of those whom we um, may not agree with. Now, uh, abortion is a, is a hard topic to address because I realize there, there's probably basically four groups of people who are out here. Uh, there are folks who are just firmly uh, um, know without a, a doubt that abortion is morally wrong and, and there's just no discussing it. And there are others who are of the position that uh, abortion is a part of a larger issue around women's rights that is very important um, if uh, we are to overcome some gender-based oppression that um, has existed for a long period of time. And then there's a, a group of people who, I don't, maybe undecided, although that's probably not likely. This is one of the few subjects that people aren't undecided, but um, may be indifferent or may just be silent. They may have views, but they, they may just choose to be silent and really not want to talk about it and are probably wondering, Pastor, you are nuts. What are you doing on Sunday morning? And then there's a, another group of people um, that um, I think we um, need to be aware of. There, there are likely families who have experienced abortion. Um, you know, I think it's 40% uh, of women have had an abortion, and so um, it is highly likely that there are folks either sitting here or who are listening who have had an abortion. And so in unpacking abortion, uh, I uh, always try to be aware of those folks uh, because I want to be careful about not heaping shame or guilt upon folks who have uh, experienced abortion. Um, who either have had one or no family members who have. And, and I think that's always an important thing we need to keep in mind when we talk about this uh, subject. And so uh, I just share that with you. Uh, I will invite you to um, email me, text me, uh, if you have questions about uh, what is uh, shared uh, this day. Um, there are some of you who are like, well, just tell us what you think so we can decide whether or not we're going to tune in or leave. You're going to have to wait. Sorry. Um, but um, as we um, unpack.
unpack this, I thought that um, I would uh, read from Deuteronomy 30 to begin with. Um, This passage, 15 through uh, 20. Uh, This is um, at the end of Deuteronomy, um, and the um, Israelites have been given the law, and these are the words that God um, has given to Moses to share with the people. And we begin in verse 15. Look here. Today I've set before you life and what's good versus death and what's wrong. If you obey the Lord your God's commandments that I'm commanding you right now by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments, his regulations, and his case laws, then you will live and thrive, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you refuse to listen and so are misled, worshiping other gods and serving them, I'm telling you right now that you will definitely die. You will not prolong your life on the fertile land that you are crossing the Jordan River to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth as my witnesses against you right now. I have set life and death, blessing and curse before you. Now choose life so that you and your descendants will live by loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by clinging to him. That's how you will survive and live long in the fertile land. The Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Everyone with ears to hear, hear this word this day. Now, that, that passage, uh, I came across uh, um, um, some writing this week uh, that uh, a pastor said he came across a, a pro-choice and a, a pro-life person having a conversation, and the pro-life person uh, quoted this, this scripture and said, well, you know, in Deuteronomy, it says, now choose life. See, uh, God is pro-life. And the pro-choice person said, yes, you're right. God says choose. You see, it seems as if sometimes we hear and emphasize things in scripture based on the perspective that we already have. Um, And if we're going to be honest, the reason abortion becomes a difficult topic for us to discuss is that there is not Scripture that directly speaks to abortion. There is no thou shalt not uh, participate in abortion. And so that indeed makes it difficult for us. Uh, And I'm going to unpack some of how, uh, I guess, one of the most disconcerting things as I have studied and looked at this, trying to understand where folks on on both uh, the anti-abortion pro-life and the pro-choice side, trying to understand where they're coming from scripturally, uh, particularly looking at Christians to understand where they come from scripturally on this. I, I have to tell you, I was quite disappointed to see how folks on both sides tend to to pick Scripture and and use it as a proof text, pull it out of context, and and say it speaks to uh, what they already believe, and then hold it up as the definitive answer for what Scripture has to say on the topic. And, And as I looked at other topics, I began to realize, really, that's often how we do a lot of these hot issues, isn't it? We go to the text with this hot issue, and we want to say, what does Scripture have to say about this? And if we're honest with ourselves, what we really are asking ourselves is, can I find Scripture to support what I already believe? Yes? 
Isn't that, isn't that the reality of how we often uh, uh, attack these different things? We look, and if we can find one scripture, it only takes one. It's just like it only takes one Facebook page to convince us that what we believe is true, no matter how ludicrous the, the post might be. Uh, but uh, if we can find one scripture that supports our view, we feel like, there we go, that's it. I don't need to look any further. I've got my one verse I can quote. Yes? That's what we do on this topic and on many topics, it seems uh, uh, to me. And um, I, I guess before I unpack some of those, it, it's probably good to, um, you know, there's a long history of abortion. I, um, I discovered a lot in just digging and realizing that um, it, it was an issue of discussion long before 1973. And in fact, uh, the, the uh, ruling of Roe versus Wade actually came in the midst of concerns about women's rights and women's privacies and, um, and arose out of that. And the interesting thing is I, as I uh, began to look and I looked at the, that, that particular um, uh, verdict or um, think of the word I want to use, that particular uh, um, um, opinion, that's the word. Supreme Court opinion, um, and, and I began to look at it. You, you know, it, it's interesting because this is such a topic that divides Republican and Democrat right and left now, right? Um, actually, when this was first, uh, w when the state law wanted to um, make it illegal for uh, abortions and the court said, no, you're invading a woman's privacy, and, and it was based on the 14th Amendment that they basically made their decision, um, there were um, seven Supreme Court justices who were nominated by Republicans and two nominated by Democrats. Five of the seven Republicans voted to overturn the state law, um, and the other two voted um, to uh, uphold the law, and the Democrats were split, or the ones appointed by Democrats were split. And the dissenting opinion was actually written by a democratically appointed um, Jurist. Um, and, um, and in the opinions written by both the, um, the side that overturned it, uh, in the opinion, it, it emphasized that while they found, on, they found this on the right to privacy for women, that they acknowledged there was a concern that at some point in time, the state's concern about an unborn child might outweigh a woman's right to privacy. And, and in the dissenting opinion that uh, I think it was Byron White wrote, uh, in the dissenting opinion, um, he, he basically said, well, if there's at any point where the state's right um, is, is, um, has a vested interest, then it should have a vested interest during the entire time if this is a potential life. And so it's interesting to uh, see how um, there was nuance in discussion on both sides when this opinion was first written and uh, where we have come to today. Unfortunately, today it's hard for us to have a conversation because on one side, if you disagree with them, um, you are called a baby killer and, and it's an attempt to end the discussion, isn't it? And on the other side, if you disagree with them, well, you, you just hate women, um, you, you just don't like women, and you're not concerned about women's rights. And, and so, um, but, but what this is boiled down to is both sides from a Christian perspective um, 
tend to agree that the taking of innocent life is wrong. Yes? I mean, I think anybody who's read Scripture uh, would understand that Scripture um, doesn't, it, it frowns on taking innocent life. And so the debate has shifted. Well, then the question becomes, when does this um, embryo, fetus, uh, unborn child, when, when does it become a person? And that's what much of the debate has been about, and that's how folks have tended to use Scripture. Um, for instance, those on the, uh, and you'll, you'll tend to see uh, more of this uh, from folks on the uh, pro-life side using Scripture, but it's also folks on the pro-choice side, and hopefully I can find my passages. I'm going to look at Psalms 139 first, which um, it, it is a powerful, um, certainly a, a powerful Scripture, and, and I'm going to begin at verse 13. And, and, and uh, it says, you are the one who created my innermost parts. You knit me together while I was still in my mother's womb. I give thanks to you that I was, a marvelously, that I was marvelously set apart. Your works are wonderful. I know that very well. My bones weren't hidden from you when I was being put together in the secret place, when I was being woven together in the deep parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my embryo, and on your scroll, every day was written that was being formed for me before any one of them had yet happened. God, your plans are incomprehensible to me. Their total number is countless. If I tried to count them, they outnumber the grains of the sand. If I came to the very end, I'd still be with you. I mean, this is a beautiful passage that reminds us that life is a gift from God. That the psalmist, as they, as they thought about the magnificence of God, and they, and they really just wanted to affirm that in every aspect of their life that they have belonged to God and that they entrust their care in God. And yet, if we're honest, if we look close at this scripture, uh, by affirming that, that God knows uh, about us ahead of time is not an affirmation that we are indeed a person from the very beginning of conception. Uh, this passage really doesn't speak to that. Similarly, a passage from Jeremiah 1 is used where uh, Jeremiah talks about before I was created, uh, before, um, where God says, before I created you in the womb, I, know, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I made you a prophet. Again, another scripture uh, that really is more uh, about Jeremiah's divine calling than it is about when someone becomes a person. In fact, if we look at that passage closely, it says, before I created you in the womb. And so if that's the case, we must be a person even before we're in the womb if we're going to apply that kind of thinking. And I point these out only in that it is important as we look at Scripture that we are careful not to take Scripture and make it say what we want to say. Because you see, the reality is, is that anyone who isn't of the Christian faith can, can pick up commentaries and can pick up studies and they can see how we've twisted Scripture. And then they begin to say, that's what Christians do with Scripture, is they just twist it to make it say what they want it to say. Now, on the pro-choice side, uh, they like to quote from Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 7. 
where it says, you know, God formed uh, humans out of the dirt. And then he breathed the breath in them and they came to life. And so that's just definitive. That means that we're not humans until we breathe. And and again, I don't think that Genesis chapter 2, talking about God breathing a breath of life into this uh, uh, adult Adam, has anything to do with um, saying that humanness begins when we breathe. It, It again is this awesome picture of a God who is the source of life. And so we see the same thing. There's another passage in um, Exodus chapter 21, which, which I found very interesting. When, when I read, uh, um, as I was reading um, folks who were writing about this, um, they would take this passage and they might add a word or here. Um, and I noticed they used different translations. And, and it's interesting, both pro-life and pro-choice uh, folks take this passage and claim that it definitively proves their case. Now scratch your head on that one. Exodus 21, beginning in verse 22, I'm reading from NIV. If men men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands, and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, this is where some commentators um, insert, if there is serious injury to the child or mother, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. Um, In other words, this passage is interpreted to say that if a woman gives birth, and the child lives, there's a, there, there's a small penalty, but if the child dies, there's a huge penalty. And so this is the definitive um, statement. Well, let's read it from a common English Bible. Again, beginning at verse 22. When people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that she has a miscarriage, but no other injury occurs, then the guilty party will be fined what the woman's husband demands as negotiated with the judges. If there is further injury, then you will give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, etc. That's completely different, isn't it? That makes it sound like If the woman is accidentally hit and the child dies, there's no penalty. There's only a penalty if the woman is hurt. And in reality, that is how most translations interpret that. In fact, the New Jerusalem Bible, who um, interpreters know a lot more about the Hebrew language than I do, that's how they interpret that passage. And so... Obviously, that's definitive, right? I mean, if in this Jewish case law uh, that there's no penalty for this accidental death uh, uh, of this child, then abortion must be okay. Anybody have a problem with that leap to claim? I mean, after all, this is an accidental thing. This is, this is not speaking directly to abortion. Whichever side of the issue you're on, this passage, again, does not speak directly to the issue. And in, in fact, um, 
in fact, the reality is in 1974, the Reformed Church um, uh, made um, this statement in their, um, in their church statement. It says, scriptural passage often cited as determining the status of the human fetus as fully human upon careful exegetical examination proved to be indecisive and are not clearly supportive of an absolute position, rather affirmative or negative. So what are we to do? I mean, so I guess the other approach would be, well, let's just throw our hands up in the air, say Scripture has nothing to say about this, and so anything goes. Well, if we're familiar, if we're reading Scripture the way that we're supposed to, if rather than going to the Scripture and looking for proof texts to support our opinions, if rather than doing that, if we find ourselves in Scripture day after day, reading the stories, reading Scripture uh, from Genesis to Revelation, allowing it to, to get into the deep depths of our being, we will discover that we don't have to pull out a particular Scripture that instead, as we absorb Scripture and we understand it in the context in which it is in, that, that we can get a fairly good idea for where God might be coming from or where God might call us on whatever particular issue that comes up in our day and times so that we can appropriate that Scripture, so that we can at least have an idea of what the boundaries are around where God might stand on a particular issue. And so if we attempt to do that with uh, this issue, if instead of going to Scripture with the issue, we think about the stories that we know, we think about the general themes that are in Scripture, uh, I think at least we can, we can get to a point where we have a common starting point, maybe. Maybe. Um, and so if we think, if we think in Scripture... Um, over and over and over again. I mean, there's probably a thousand passages in Scripture where uh, God, the prophets, talk about caring for the poor, caring for uh, the widow and the orphan and the marginalized and how important it is for people of faith to be a voice for, for those folks. And we know that from Scripture. And so that should cause us to think, um, actually, in two different directions. On the one hand, um, are not unborn children, um, de de regardless of when you think that uh, an embryo becomes uh, human life, it is certainly the only thing I know of that can become human life, right? A and so, um, so this, uh, this embryo, this fetus, is a vulnerable individual, and so I think God calls us to take that into consideration. At the same time, if we understand the statistics of abortions, we know that 50% of abortions um, are, um, that 50% that, uh, of the women who have abortions live below the poverty line. 75% are of low income. They're often making these choices because they feel like they just can't support them financially or, or uh, they have other circumstances and they feel as if they have no other need. And so this scripture speaks to us and says, yes, we, we ought to uh, consider that child. And at the same time, as we consider the um, importance and the significance of this potential life that is in a mother's womb, uh, what is it that we do to also... Make it 
less likely that women encounter circumstances where they feel like this is the only choices they have. Do you see how Scripture challenges us from both directions if we listen to Scripture from that standpoint? The same thing goes uh, for uh, the idea of shalom, this idea of peace and justice that runs throughout Scripture, this idea uh, of the well-being and human flourishing. A similar thing, it it makes us uh, think about um, it is important to consider this life that is in a mother's womb, but it is also important to consider the well-being of that child after he or she is born and what kind of life and opportunities that they have. Not that abortion is an acceptable answer so they don't have to experience that, but, but what are other things that can be done? And then, of course, I think as I read Scripture over and over again, passages like Deuteronomy, passages like John 10 where Jesus says, I came so that you might have life to the fullest, As I read scripture over and over again, I tell you, I can't help but see the sacredness and the sanctity of life that God has. And so I do think that regardless of where we, where we begin on this issue, um, it is important for us to understand as a God is source of, of life in any issue that revolves around life, whether it be death penalty or the war or poverty or abortion, we begin with a pro-life stance. Not just an anti-abortion, because you see, pro-life is much more than anti-abortion. Pro-life is this desire to live life with God so that all humans might flourish. See, God doesn't call us just to wait around until we die and we get to heaven, but he wants us to enjoy life here. He wants humanity to flourish. And so maybe if we begin to read Scripture in these ways, maybe we can come to some kind of, a, of an agreement, of a starting point. Maybe we can understand the other side a little bit better. But it seems like to me for those who are, are more pro-choice, Um, I I think if we're honest in reading Scripture, if we're honest in seeing God's um, call on life, regardless of when we think human life starts. In fact, I would say we just need to forget about that debate. Regardless of when we think human life begins, we we must see that this, this embryo, this fetus, has moral significance. Even some who argue for pro choice argue that this is a decision of morality. They just come about it from a different standpoint. They come about it by saying, well, it is a choice of morality. It is a choice of what kind of of condition that I'm going to bring this child in. Am I morally responsible to bring a child into such poverty, to bring a child into a place where I cannot support the child or I don't even want the child? Do you you hear the moral issues on both sides? And yet I think as Christians we have to begin with understanding that that the fetus, the fetus is is a potential human being. And so we also have to hear the other side that, that the mother is already alive, that the woman is already alive, and that her life is important to consider also. 
And so um, to say that a, a woman who might um, have to decide between an abortion and her own life ha- doesn't have that choice doesn't seem right to me. Does that seem right to you? Uh, uh, that's difficult choice. Now, that's a, small, that's a small number of abortions. On the other side of things, um, as I was reading this week, uh, to say that anything goes and um, there should be no restrictions around abortion, which even the person who wrote the um, a supporting opinion um, didn't say when Roe versus Wade, um, that can lead us to a path where I, I think it's in Iceland. Um, in Iceland, they tout the fact that they have eliminated Down syndrome in Iceland. Yeah, I, I read that this week, and I was, I mean, I was sick at my stomach. Uh, as if it's uh, malaria or COVID-19 or something. Uh, if, if we're not careful, we go down this path where we, we use it as a, as a way to manipulate genetics. That's a sad thing. I, I talked with Lindsay Tate this week because you, Penelope has Down syndrome. And I, I just wanted to ask her, like, like you know, uh, she didn't know that Penelope was going to have Down but she's part of that community. And she tells me uh, that people in that, uh, people who find out that they have a Down syndrome child, that, that they are almost um, encouraged to not take the child to birth. I struggle with that. That doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't seem, as I read scripture, that doesn't seem consistent with God's view of things. So where do, where do we go? Where do we start? Let me suggest that the debate that we're in now where we just call people baby killers or women haters is not going to resolve the issue. It's not going to bring us together as Christians. You know, I, I talk to folks, and I have never met a pro-choice person who has told me, you know, the more abortions there are, the happier I'll be. But yet that's what we make it sound like, isn't it? I have never heard, I think every, uh, uh, within the church, when I talk to people, everybody agrees that we should be doing everything we can to reduce the number of abortions. We should be doing everything that we can. And so I understand the the folks who are just adamant that the answer is to overturn Roe versus Wade. I I understand um, how they are adamant. If they indeed believe that a child has life from conception, then they think that it is murder. I understand how they can be adamant about that. And yet I got to be honest with you. Um, In my lifetime, that debate has been going on for like 30 years. For like 30 years years and and i can't help but wonder i can't help but wonder if there aren't other ways to reduce abortion in fact there is data and information that suggests that that when we teach people about uh, contraception when we teach people how to avoid unplanned pregnancies 
when we make education and health care available to those who are poor, that the number of abortions, that the percentage of abortions goes down. And there's not a corresponding increase in birth. So that tells you that, they're, that, that they are, are at least learning how not to have unplanned or unwanted pregnancies. And in fact, that cycle's been repeated several times. I can't help but wonder if, if we were to begin to have this discussion around what are the best things we can do to reduce the number of abortions if we might open up the church's stance on that, not just to be so adamant against Roe versus Wade, but also to begin to talk about what can we do to truly bring that number down? And what can we do to come alongside women who feel like they have no other choices because of their finances, because uh, of where they are in the economic system, uh, because uh, of the abuses that they feel? How do we come alongside of them and let them know there may be other choices? we certainly supporting the Pregnancy uh, Crisis Center, which um, is here in Cameron now, is the thing that we do to, to um, uh, come alongside women. What can we do to support them after they give birth to a child so that they don't feel uh, uh, alone and hopeless? What can we do to encourage adoption and foster care? And see, if we begin to think that way, the whole realm of things opens up. And we might be surprised if Christians who, who um, identify as pro-life or pro-choice come together and, and work together, we might be surprised at the dent that we could make in the number of abortions that happen in the United States. You see how sometimes simply stepping back, maybe looking at an issue from a different perspective might allow us to actually work together and to make some progress on some of these issues. And I would argue that that is perfectly biblical um, answer to where we stand this day. Um, I was going to read. I won't do that. Um, the uh, United Methodist, um, I'll, I'll post this out on the website, I think, just so you can see the United Methodist position on abortion. It's not much different than what I, what I actually shared with you. Um, and so I'll post that so that you can see that. If you have questions, uh, you can ask me. Um, but I just invite us. I invite us on this issue. Uh, on many of these hot topic issues, I invite us to um, open up our minds uh, not go to Scripture looking for answers to support our views, but understand the gist of stories. Um, ask ourselves, do I believe this because I firmly have, have been uh, convicted of this because of the Spirit and Scripture, or is it simply because uh, of my cultural upbringing or where I am? And so uh, let us pray. Gracious God, as we come to you this day, as we uh, wrap up talking about faith and politics, um, we would just ask, Lord, that, um, that your spirit speak to us. Help us, Lord, so that we can indeed speak the truth in love, so that we can seek your ways 
so that we can hear your voice and so that we can truly make a difference in the lives of people so that we indeed might participate in enabling folks to flourish.